Hi everyone, and welcome to Wise Campus Podcast. I'm Sabrine, your host. Thanks for listening. Wise Campus stands for Women in International Security. We are a student-led chapter dedicated to empowering young women in the professional sector of peace, security and defense, starting at the university level. As part of that effort, we are inviting young professional women to discuss today's top issues, contributing to making space for their voices and valuing their point of view. So for this new podcast, we decided to talk about COP26, climate change and the importance of the involvement of women and girls and more broadly underrepresented groups. We welcome new WISE Campus member Jordan Coop, who will share her experience. Jordan, thank you for joining. And can you quickly introduce yourself and tell us how you end up at COP26? How was it? Honestly, it was a really humbling yet empowering experience. It was amazing to be surrounded by world leaders, experts, and activists. Yet at the same time, it felt like a doorway into the room, but not a true seat at the table. So my interest in climate change really started from a young age, especially living in Canada. We have a lot of uh, access to the environment and we can see how important nature and ecosystems are to this world. I realize that climate change really is the most pressing issue for our generation. I have seen the impacts of it, uh, especially in British Columbia and Canada. We've had devastating forest fires This really gave me a look into the future of what the world could look like if we don't take action now to solve climate change. After my undergrad, I decided to pursue my master's in diplomacy and global governance. I actually wrote my thesis on how different tracks of diplomacy can help to propel the issue of gender security to the forefront of global climate negotiations. This allowed me to get involved with a couple of different organizations, the Institute for Environmental Security as one of them, the Brussels Dialogue for Climate Diplomacy as well. Uh, and then I actually attended COP26 on behalf of them. Uh, what was really amazing was the amount of women who were present at COP26. Unfortunately, still a lot of the actual party negotiators were not women. Most head negotiators of the states were held by uh, men. That being said, within the other spaces, there was a lot of women present. But moving forward, women still need increased visibility, power, and involvement at these conversations. There's a lot of dialogue going around about how COP26 was the most exclusive COP yet. This due in part to uh, COVID-19, of course, and the current state of affairs. But as well, women still aren't given positions of power within global negotiations, which eventually needs to change as it is imperative to have these voices. Did you feel like you had your place there? To be completely honest and transparent, yes and no. I, I felt like I had my place uh, when I talked to people one-on-one, -on -one, uh, when I attended panels. My input was really felt. Uh, people were very interested in the work that my organization was doing with IES. Uh, people really wanted to connect and network. But at the same time, it was really challenging because you weren't actually a part of negotiations. So you weren't part of the track one process, which is the formal negotiations that take place behind closed doors in the negotiating rooms. But at the same time, you're part of the track two process. 
which is more the informal negotiations that take place between uh, non-state actors. So you had NGOs, civil society, and within those forums and settings, we were, you know, networking, working with different groups. Okay, how can I help your group uh, achieve their work? How can we assist with your organization on water and food security? What can we do to help you? So it was a lot more kind of grassroots solutions. But when it came to the actual formal negotiating track and participating and contributing to the text that came out, so the Glasgow Climate Pact, um, you don't really have a place when you are just an NGO observer. Thank you so much, Jordan. So even though women's participation has been growing in international conferences, and specifically in the past few years, there are still challenges and barriers that women are forced to overcome. And we are talking about a male-dominated setting. That's why we have invited a pair of guests onto the podcast to talk about the place of women and gender in global climate change issues and the conversations on this topic. We have Marion Russe, Program Officer at Search for Common Ground, and Annika Vollmer, Program Coordinator at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Welcome both, and thank you for being here. Could you please introduce yourself? Sure, thank you, Sabrine. And thank you for the invitation and for WISE for hosting this podcast. So my name is Annika Farmer. My background is in security, specifically asymmetric warfare and international humanitarian cooperation. I started my career working for a small NGO that focused on promoting democracy initiatives and advocating for inclusive electoral and socioeconomic practices. And for the past few years, I've been now working for the German Marshall Fund of the United States. And I was um, I've been focusing for the most part on EU foreign policy and more recently, I'd say the interplay of security and climate change, which is really becoming a concrete interest of mine. Marion? Thank you so much for the invitation. I really appreciate it. So my name is Marion Russ. I am originally from Austria and I relocated to Belgium in 2019 after having spent some time in, in Jordan. And I started out my career in a women's NGO in Vienna, basically um, promoting women's equal access to the labor market and drawing attention to, to some of the barriers that women face in, in many different fields and spaces. Um, and then about three years ago, I decided to move into the peace and security sector. And I have worked for Search for Common Ground ever since, which is the world's largest dedicated peace building NGO. Um, and then for the past year or so, I've really grown very, very interested in the topic of conflict and climate change and how the both, how both of them interlink. Um, and I've been building expertise in this field and what brings me here today. <laughs> to kick off the conversation, it was three months ago already, but did you watch what happened at COP26? Yeah, maybe I can uh, I can start. So yeah, definitely. I, I caught followed COP26 like I think most people did uh, I think for everyone it's of interest what um, they decide upon and what the outcomes are and how concrete they are I think it's in everyone's self-interest also to keep up to date um, and so yeah it was a, of course a very interesting thing to follow especially with all the protests that were going on yeah I mean I, I feel like it was hard to avoid for a couple of weeks so I followed a couple of the sessions um, but I was also really interested to see some of the side events and sort of things that people and organizations organized around the COP26. And some of that was really super interesting. 
Yeah, Marianne, it's great that you actually brought up the COP26 side events because this was a really important area for activists within gender and climate security to showcase the work that they're doing. Actually in the green pavilion, which was outside the blue zone, so this was able for the public to access, every day there was actually seminars, panels, and discussions on gender and climate change, which was really interesting to see. A lot of these side events organized by these other organizations and NGOs allowed for this topic to be addressed outside of formal negotiations. So it's great that you brought that up. So climate change, this is not a new subject of discussion. Why is it important to talk about climate change now? What's a better, more helpful approach to communicating on climate change? What do you think, Jordan? Yeah, that's a great question. Of course, uh, this is COP26. There has been 26 other COPs, but for some reason, this one felt even more important. And I think that that is because this is the first time that truly everyone in the world is experiencing the impact of climate change especially for the Western world and from the Western perspective, climate change was something that happened far away, but now it's happening within our own neighborhoods. For example, there was flooding in uh, Central Europe this summer. There's been severe uh, fires and wildfires in the US and raging up the coast of Canada. It's now really impacting uh, the Western nations within their own backyard, which is something that hasn't occurred before. Also, this truly is the deciding decade to limit warning to 1.5 degrees Celsius. 1.5 degrees Celsius is super important within climate change and climate governance because this is the international goal for trying to limit future warning to 1.5 degrees Celsius since pre-industrial times. And this number was generated by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Right now, this is the time for us to take action to actually achieve this goal and prevent the worst detriments of climate change. But to answer the second question, a way to communicate climate change uh, and a more helpful approach is to really frame it from a human perspective. A lot of times climate change has been framed from an environmental perspective where, you know, this is detrimental to ecosystems, biodiversity, but now more and more we are seeing the human cost and impacts of climate change. It's now a threat multiplier, it accelerates uh, conflict and it also impacts uh, marginalized groups disproportionately with the largest burden being on women. By framing it from that human security perspective, I think we'll get a lot of people more interested and involved with the conversation. Annika? Well, first, I'd like to echo some of the points that Jordan just made. I think until quite recently, um, at least in Central Europe, we were able to sort of ignore the impact of climate change and the one it will have on our environment and the way we live. And I think the extreme weather events of the past year that Jordan also mentioned, uh, and in my case, the flooding in North Rhine-Westphalia was for the first time something that hits somewhat closer to home. And I think even more importantly is that climate change is unparalleled in its complexity. So basically it's a threat multiplier, it shapes our geopolitical environment, impacts the resilience of our critical infrastructure and has already led to displacement and migration issues and destruction of ecosystems. And those are only to mention a few examples. And I think it presents security implications and risks conflict prevention and resolution. And because it impacts all of these aspects of society and all countries across the world, um, 
And because it does so differently, I think it's critical that we facilitate awareness building through open dialogue and in whichever form possible. So I think it's really, really important to include a willingness to listen to other perspectives and to different perspectives than maybe our own because we have different experiences and that we learn from these experiences. So I think in that respect, we really need to have an open ear for everyone's opinion and communicate as openly as possible. And what about you, Marion? Um, I think from my perspective, coming from the peace building angle, it's become quite obvious that climate change, you know, compounds existing vulnerabilities. And this sort of resonates with something that Jordan was mentioning earlier. And we now really have much better data to show um, this link between climate and fragility, which is super interesting and very, very valuable. I don't think we realize how valuable data is in this conversation. Um, and maybe just to give an example, about two thirds of the countries that are most affected by climate change are also the most fragile countries. And, you know, those two factors, conflict and, and climate change or fragility and climate change are the two biggest factors in displacement and migration, which then, you know, affect even more communities. Um, I think even though there has been more awareness in countries such as Belgium this year with the flooding, um, I do think that, you know, me sitting comfortably in my apartment in Brussels, it's often quite easy to kind of push that away or to also feel really overwhelmed by the information that's out there and kind of freeze um, and to sort of think there's nothing I can do anyways. Um, but I think what we really need to understand and what more and more people are coming to understand is that climate change will affect all of us at different speeds and it will affect us differently, um, but it's going to impact every single one of us. Um, and I think now is a really good time to, to make people aware of that and to, to think about ways in which they can contribute and not feel powerless. Um, and I think the most helpful approach in doing so is to really understand what are some of the effective ways that we can contribute that go beyond, you know, have, eating a vegan diet or, you know, not buying the newest cell phone or reducing household waste. Like we really need to think about sort of impactful ways in which we can contribute. What is the place of women in climate conferences such as COP26? What about youth and underrepresented groups? What's your opinion on this, Jordan? I think that it is critical to view climate change and climate governance from a intersectional perspective, because it's important to understand the differences of the impacts of climate change on different groups such as race, class and gender because this is something that's so important. When you really look at who is impacted most by climate change, it's a lot of time already marginalized groups and especially vulnerable populations such as women. For example, when an extreme weather event will hit uh, a community, a lot of times men become climate refugees while it's the women who have to stay there and look for economic solutions for her family and come up with the solutions um, to deal with climate change from a local perspective in the community that they live in. It is so important to include these voices and different perspectives when you are uh, dealing with climate change because these are the people that actually have that perspective. They're the ones who are being impacted and they're the ones that are able to provide innovative and effective solutions moving forward. Marion? I think maybe a couple of things to, to add to the table here. Um, I think 
about 80% of people displaced by climate change are women, which I think is a number that you really need to let sink in. And only 10% of the international aid for agriculture, forestry, and fishing goes to women, which is a ridiculous amount. And then, you know, you look at some of the other barriers, like women have less access to training and technology, which makes it more difficult for them to adapt to climate change. And and sort of the inequalities that, that women face, they are only exacerbated by climate change and by resource scarcity, as was already mentioned. Speaking from some of the work that Search for Common Ground is doing, you know, we know that there are communities in which women are responsible for fetching water for their households. And, you know, I think for us, it's sometimes really difficult to imagine this, but this is like an extremely strenuous task. It's like extremely challenging for your health. And then when a drought hits your village or the area you live in, you have to walk longer distances to get water, which then puts you at a higher risk to sexual and gender-based violence. And then, you know, less water means poor sanitation, which is especially difficult for women and girls. Like what I really like to remind myself of is that it's so important to recognize the role that women and youth and marginalized communities, such as indigenous communities, play as champions in their communities. You know, they, they hold unique knowledge, they often have an incredible capacity to address some of the changes that are going on in their area. And they often initiate dialogue and are able to like bring people together across dividing lines to collaborate and to, to jointly address climate-related challenges. Investing in these groups of people can really create a ripple effect for entire communities and sometimes countries. You know, there's research that shows that countries with high representation of women in parliament are more likely to ratify international environment treaties. So if we're really serious about addressing climate change effectively and sustainably, I think we have to include women and youth and these other groups. Jordan? It was really interesting because the presidency of COP26 of the UK included no women. And this is shocking because these are the people who are actually organizing this conference and to have such a lack of women or no women at all present in the uh, top down structure who are actually organizing the conference is not okay. So as I mentioned earlier, women are generally included in COP26 in these conferences, but they aren't really given a seat at the table. A doctor from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change during a seminar uh, at the, U, the United Nations uh, Pavilion actually informed us at a panel that only 38% of party delegates at the past three COPs have been women. This is not even half. And in the main negotiating arena, the positions of chief negotiator are predominantly held by men. These are the people who are actually in there negotiating the terms of the text for the end of the conference. There's also structural barriers that were present at COP26 that prevented women's groups, indigenous rights and youth activists from being present in key negotiating spaces. Previously, observers were allowed to enter into negotiating rooms uh, behind closed doors to observe the negotiations and try and help influence. But at this COP26, due to security reasons, uh, due to the pandemic, these were completely off limits for observers, meaning that a lot of these people who are typically underrepresented were not represented at all. Never before has a COP been so exclusive for NGO status observers, which most of these groups, women, indigenous, uh, marginalized communities, 
are mostly NGO status observers. This is the accreditation that they hold and they weren't actually present for the actual negotiations. So a lot of the conference, the place for these groups were actually on the outside, demanding justice, building networks and really trying to grow their strength in numbers. Every day there was hundreds of protesters outside really fighting for climate justice and demanding justice. And it was quite interesting because a lot of people that I know who actually hold these spaces, so youth activists, women, indigenous groups who were actually supposed to be at COP26 were actually on the outside protesting and joining those activists calling for more inclusion. So that was really amazing to see was the numbers of young people and women who are actually on the outside calling for more inclusion within spaces like this. And what do you think, Anika? So I'd like to share my enthusiasm for sort of what was happening outside of the actual decision-making rooms. And I think if you look at the climate protests and uh, sort of their calls for concrete proposals and accountability, they demonstrated not only clear dedication for what climate or the impacts of climate change, but also I felt like they feel underrepresented and that they feel like they don't have a place at the conference. Besides that, it also just undermines the credibility of such a summit and its outcomes. But also more in general, I'd like to tackle maybe from a little bit of a societal perspective is that as in many other fields, women, youth, marginalized groups, they are underrepresented. And so my question is, why would it be any different at a climate conference? And if you look at the UNFCCC, um, it has acknowledged sort of the importance of the gender balance and in climate delegations and climate considerations or climate action. But the reality is that, or COP26 demonstrated a clear underrepresentation of certain groups. And I think just the pandemic added, of course, sort of another layer of inequality as people had to navigate travel restrictions and vaccine mandates and high travel. And I think accommodation costs as well was like a big issue and all said to have especially disadvantaged developing countries. Despite being there, being present, they were at times also restricted or limited due to restricted and limited venue capacity turned away. I think all of these aspects are especially problematic if we're talking about exactly these groups having to be in the room and being part of the decision making and it being such an important aspect. Yeah, Annika, you bring up really great points. And I think I have two really interesting anecdotes from the conference itself that will help illuminate this. So actually, because of the exclusivity and the restrictions, most of us women and most of us young people were sitting in the conference halls outside of the negotiation rooms, trying to watch it on our laptops. So we were physically present at COP26, but we were not allowed in the rooms. We had to sit outside and watch it, watch the live stream or watch the feed, even though we were a delegate at the conference. I've never experienced anything like that. And another anecdote, so I was, uh, I had some people in my network who are part of a large global youth network, um, and they were actually meeting for a peer policy assembly with a head of state of one of the member states of the European Union. 
And they actually went uh, to meet with this head of state and it was supposed to be this big uh, seminar where they would discuss policy and the youth opinion. And this was seen to be really progressive and exclusive, uh, inclusive of young people. When they got to this meet and greet, they posed immediately for a photo op with the head of state, shook hands, and then were sent on their way. The young people didn't even get to discuss policy with this head of state, and that was the purpose for the meeting. Instead, they were really used as a token to portray the image of youth engagement and youth involvement, when in actuality, it was really just a, a public relations photo shoot, and then they were sent on their way without actually providing the youth opinion and providing policy. So that was really uh, disappointing to see. What would you like to say about that, Marion? Um, I feel like it's it's very difficult not to get cynical <laughs> with everything you just mentioned, Jordan, um, though I am Austrian, so maybe that's in my genes, but that's uh, outrageous. Um, I think, and this also goes back to something that Annika said earlier, when you look at the barriers for women and youth and other marginalized groups to, you know, any decision-making role anywhere in the world, um, it's it's no surprise, I guess, that climate change is no exception to that rule or COP26 is no exception to that rule. You know, women are less recognized as experts, they're less represented at negotiating tables. And this goes for, you know, peace negotiations just as much as, as the COP26. Um, they make up less political representatives and so on and so forth. I think what a lot of people don't understand is that the problem with that is that when women and youth are less represented, the agenda doesn't reflect their grievances and their needs um, adequately. And then the outcome of a high level conference such as COP26 can never address them adequately. I really fully agree with this um, She Changes Climate Initiative, which really strongly advocates for a 50% smart quota of women at COP. Um, although, of course, you know, a quota alone, alone is, is never sufficient. I appreciated that there was this gender day that they organized on, on November 9th, 2021, um, which was, I think, de dedicated to highlighting the, the impact of, of climate change on women and girls, particularly. Um, I think that's, you know, a great initiative, though I also think that gender equality shouldn't only be discussed in a separate panel, you know, it needs to be talked about anywhere and everywhere. And I, I don't really get tired of highlighting this. Um, and people who roll their eyes at the thought of, of gender mainstreaming, they either benefit from gender inequalities or they have their own misogynistic demons to fight, which don't we all? <laughs> I think people don't realize the more women and youth are included in policy and decision-making, the more sustainable and successful and impactful the decisions will be for everybody, not just for them, but for everybody. So for COP26, can we talk about success? If not, what are the main takeaways for vulnerable people and underrepresented groups? Well, for the first time ever, COP26 included a phrase about gender in the uh, Glasgow Climate Pact under Article 91. This is a amazing step in the right direction because this is uh, extremely monumental moving forward to recognize the disproportionate gender impacts of climate change. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't ambitious enough. Finance for loss and damage by developed countries for the uh, least developing countries is still not up to their previous contribution. 
they still haven't pledged enough to meet that target and goal. So trust has not been restored between these groups. And a lot of that finance for loss and damage goes to uh, women on the ground experiencing these impacts of climate change. But I would say the main takeaways would be to remain optimistic. You can't view these conferences in terms of binaries. You can't say, okay, that was a success or that was a failure. You have to look at what was a success, what didn't work, and what can we you know, capitalize to uh, create effective solutions in the future. And one thing that really stood out for me, which Marianne brought this up earlier, was the fact that they included an entire day on gender. This is something that hopefully they will include in COP27, which means that an entire day again will be dedicated to gender, which will build up on the momentum and the progress that was made at this COP. So even though, you know, this wasn't as ambitious as we'd like, uh, a lot of the goals that climate justice activists were calling for weren't met, there is already that momentum. And as long as we keep that momentum going forward, then this could actually lead to more of a serious impact at COP27. And I must say that, you know, we have strength in numbers and the stronger you get and the more people get involved, the more you can actually make a change. And just being at the conference and seeing the amount of young people and the amount of young women present, this is only going to increase in future COPs. Yeah, so as, as Jordan said, I think, what the Glasgow Climate Pact does, it goes sort of a little bit like a step further in the right direction. So I think two articles stand out to me, and I think it's Article 62, which urges the implementation of a work program on action for climate empowerment. And then Article 68, I think, which encourages the equal participation of women. And I think those sort of two things are a really good step in the right direction. But I think if we're talking about sort of whether it was a success or not, I think judging and judging mostly by sort of climate activists that were in Glasgow or also from my own home country, uh, so from Germany, it has not really been a success because more than anything else, it demonstrated sort of the clear discrepancy between the proposals of global leaders and um, that happened more or less behind closed doors and the unmet sort of expectations of activists on the ground, on the street, protesting every single day. From the perspective of German climate activists, um, they criticized it to be mostly like a betrayal of the younger generation. I mean, they were very critical and sort of the lack of accountability for of Germany um, and its climate debt um, and sort of that they didn't give concrete commitments uh, to the phase out of coal, oil and gas. And I think a last thing was also the recognition of the differentiated impact on vulnerable groups that also I think Jordan mentioned before, sort of in the finance mechanism, which I think would have been a very important step. So we are coming to the end of this episode. What's your final thoughts on our discussion? Jordan? The momentum must not be stopped on the way to COP27. And it's important to understand that COP27 will be held in Egypt next year. This is a chance for Africa to provide a opportunity to set the agenda and amplify the voices of the global south to include more of these underrepresented groups. African-led climate action will now be in the spotlight of COP27 and could be a huge turning point in the overall climate negotiations. I'm extremely hopeful that COP27 will reflect on the successes and failures of Glasgow, especially when it comes to gender, climate security, and these issues that we talked about. It should be moving forward more inclusive for underrepresented groups, 
And I'm hopeful that COP27 will be and will be a turning point for the future of climate negotiations. Thanks, Jordan. So yes, for me, climate change and its impact spares no one. So, and I think that the extreme weather events of 2021 has really just demonstrated that more than ever. And in the German case specifically, what makes me hopeful is the Green Party. For the first time, we have this party in government at a federal level. And I think that also maybe reflects, hopefully, uh, a change in mindset of the German population. But also, there are so many initiatives, whether private or institutional, that um, demonstrate the willingness to make a change. I just hope that they promote a coordinated, coherent and holistic framework in whichever way possible. And I really hope that think tanks and NGOs um, continue with their important advocacy work and the dedication of the young, uh, the youth. I just hope that they are willing to still go to the streets and still stand up for what's important to them and hold global leaders accountable for their actions. I really want to stress that climate change requires, you know, a, a concerted effort that is inclusive of all. Um, and that includes policy and decision makers, the private sector, NGOs, you know, or the broader civil society, multilaterals, women, youth, marginalized communities. And I think a couple of ways in which we can do that are to exchange knowledge and to collaborate and to do joint advocacy. Um, I think it's really a great sign that so many people and institutions are now addressing this topic and are also identifying concrete entry points for them to, to make things better. So I would like to say thank you to our guests, Jordan, Annika and Marion for coming on this show. Thank you all for your contribution. It was very interesting. Thank you, Sabrine, for hosting this and to Weiss Campus. It was an absolute pleasure speaking to both Marianne and Annika and hearing their perspectives on climate change, gender and security. I think it was really insightful. And yeah, I look forward to working together with you all in the future. Yeah, I just would like to echo Jordan's words. Uh, it was a real pleasure to talk with all of you. And I really hope we can stay in contact and keep the conversation going. Absolutely. I can only echo that. Um, it's been a really fruitful conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me. That's it for our episode. Tune in next time for more insight from young professional women in international security. Bye.